High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. You must a kiss is just a kiss, a Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and today we bring you another story from The Seduced, a mini-series related to my new book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. Today's episode concerns an actress who Hughes successfully wooed, but whose romantic resume would become so varied and eventful that Hughes wouldn't necessarily be the highlight. Yvonne DiCarlo worked steadily in mostly B and genre movies for over 40 years, only reaching her biggest triumphs on television and on Broadway. She is probably the only person who has been a subject on this podcast whose story includes the mentorship of both Billy Wilder and Stephen Sondheim, and who is still most famous for playing an undead housewife. Join us, won't you, for part five of The Seduced, Yvonne DiCarlo. Born Peggy Middleton in Vancouver, Canada, the future Yvonne DiCarlo was raised by a single mother, Marie, and Marie's mother and sister, 
after an incident in which a naked male boarder broke into Yvonne's bedroom in the middle of the night and peed on the little girl. Marie used to take her daughter with her on dates, telling the young girl to sleep in the back seat of the car while Marie and her man of the moment went to bars. At Marie's insistence, from a very young age, Yvonne studied dance every day after school. As a result, by the time Yvonne was a tween, she had exhausted the available dance training in Vancouver. So Marie decided to take her daughter to Los Angeles. Mother and daughter would hop back and forth across the border several times over the next few years. By the fall of 1938, 16-year-old Yvonne was enrolled at Hollywood High School and beginning to do some modeling. She came in second place in the Miss Venice Beauty Contest and won a $25 prize, about $500 in 2018 dollars, and what Yvonne described as a small fortune at the tail end of the Depression, when she and her mother were living on a single diner waitress's salary. She also earned a chance to audition for Earl Carroll's, a nightclub in the heart of Hollywood. But once at the audition, she was informed that she would be required to show her upper assets to Mr. Carroll himself. When the teenager, who was pretending to be several years older than she was in order to legally work, asked why it would be necessary to go topless in an audition for a job as a non-topless dancer, she was informed, It's Mr. Carroll's policy to take a look, to make sure nobody's cheating, if you know what I mean. Yvonne refused to show her assets, and she and her mother went across the street to another nightclub, the Florentine Gardens, where they only required that she show her legs before agreeing to give her a tryout that night, live on stage in front of a paying crowd. The audition was a success, and no one asked her age. She started in the back chorus line, and with hard work, moved up to the front chorus line, and then started earning special featured dances like one where she cast off a series of chiffon veils until she was nearly naked, only to be carried off by a man in a gorilla suit. All was going swimmingly until the Department of Immigration discovered that she was working on an expired tourist visa and gave Yvonne 24 hours to return to Canada. But the manager of the Florentine Gardens stuck his neck out for Yvonne and vouched for her with the immigration board to arrange a long-term work visa. So soon the teenager was back, performing sexy dances to songs like Bolero in front of nightclub crowds sprinkled with celebrities, such as Franchot Tone, Burgess Meredith, and Orson Welles. Welles asked her out to dinner, and Yvonne accepted, but instead he took her to his house and chased her around his art collection until he got the hint. Yvonne was a virgin. Wells called a cab to take her home. During this period, she also met Anthony Quinn, who told her he wanted her to stand 
on a literal pedestal, quote, where I can worship you hour after hour. And she met Sterling Hayden, to whom Yvonne seriously considered losing her virginity. But Hayden advised, wait for the right guy. She was ready to make Jimmy Stewart the right guy, but at the end of their first dinner date, she was embarrassed to invite him into the tiny apartment she shared with her mother. They didn't have another date, and the right guy soon came along, and he wasn't famous. Yvonne later recalled, I was so fed up with my virginity that I was glad to be rid of it. Clarinetist and band leader Artie Shaw, who also took a liking to Yvonne, wasn't the right guy. He would prove to be a definite Mr. Wrong, who would go through wives as fast as reeds. But Shaw, according to Yvonne, was merely a supportive friend to her. A very supportive friend. He told her he would pay her a salary for one month if she quit her nightclub job and dedicated herself to trying to break into movies. Yvonne took the offer, and before the month was out, she did land her first film role, a one-line walk-on. And that was it. With no other roles coming in, she was forced to go back to nightclub dancing. But slowly, bit parts started to filter in. In the summer of 1942, just before she turned 20, Yvonne was signed to a contract at Paramount. She paid her dues, playing mostly background roles and posing for pinup and publicity photos. Hanging around the lot, attempting to gain purchase as a contract starlet, Yvonne began a relationship with Billy Wilder. It didn't last long, and the great writer-director didn't cast her in any of his films. But DiCarlo would nonetheless call him the first big love of my life. He would also introduce her to Ernst Lubitsch, who became a close platonic friend. But these friendships didn't lead to job security. Eventually, Yvonne was informed that exotic types like her were no longer in fashion, and Paramount was dropping her contract. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. It's taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,025, 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, 
get reliable forecasts and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash remember. That's netsuite.com slash remember to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash remember. Exotic types never went out of fashion over the hill at Universal. A decade and a half had passed since Dracula had given that studio both a defining genre, horror, and business model, franchises and formula, to rally around. More than ever, the house that Carl Lemley had built kept afloat by cranking out low-cost genre films. They began the 1940s by trying to make Lon Chaney Jr. happen in updates of the 1930s horror formula like The Wolfman and Son of Dracula. And they began looking for ways to adapt this type of formulaic production to other genres. In 1942, independent producer Walter Wanger made the biographical aviation adventure Eagle Squadron, the first of 14 films that he'd produce from within the auspices of Universal. Eagle Squadron, which Wanger was able to produce relatively cheaply by taking advantage of Universal's contract players and other resources, was enormously profitable and Wanger followed it up with another picture at the studio, Arabian Nights, which was Universal's first film shot in three-strip Technicolor. Arabian Nights invented a new Universal formula. The exotic, read mildly racist, romance. This wasn't really new. In fact, one of Wanger's earlier successes had been the Hedy Lamarr vehicle Algiers, itself a remake of the French film Pepe Lamoco, which was still innovative within Hollywood in that it relied on a foreign location, largely unfamiliar to American audiences, to add frisson to a fairly conventional love story. But Arabian Nights and other Wanger and Wanger-style films that would follow at Universal would make Algiers look like Casablanca. To put it more simply, Arabian Nights was crude, lurid, and mostly memorable for codifying what became a new genre at Universal, described simply by Wanger as tits and sand. The female star of Arabian Nights was Maria Montez, a Dominican actress who Universal had decided to promote as their answer to exotic glamour girls like Lamar or Rita Hayworth, who, with her flaming red, technicolor-ready hair, Montez resembled. Arabian Nights made Montez a big enough star that Universal began looking for younger actresses, whom they could groom to make cheaper versions of the kinds of movies Montez starred in. Yvonne was brought on to the Universal lot to do a screen test to play a wolf girl in one of these movies. 
as she was passing through the Universal offices into her meeting with the casting director, she walked past Walter Wanger. Wanger thought Yvonne resembled his wife, actress Joan Bennett, whose transformation from blonde to a noir-ready brunette Wanger had overseen. The head of casting at Universal told Yvonne that Wanger was looking for the star of his next film, but he needed a beauty who could sing, dance, and act. I can handle that, Yvonne said. So she was given her second screen test of the day, thanked for her time, and sent home. But Wanger liked the test and ordered another one. After that, Yvonne was told that Universal wanted to sign her to an entry-level contract to make sure she was available should Wanger decide to cast her. Knowing Universal, this was probably a ploy to get her cheap. They were able to get an actress who would appear in most scenes of an epic Technicolor adventure film, and in some of those scenes, dance while more than half naked, for barely more than the price of an extra. Yvonne didn't find out she had the part until she walked out of her apartment and tripped over a newspaper containing an article announcing that she had been cast as Salome, and that Wanger had dubbed her the most beautiful girl in the world. In her autobiography, DiCarlo calls Salome Where She Danced a satire and admits that while shooting, she was so green she didn't realize that the film was intended to be a comedy. But to call Salome, or Salome as it's pronounced in the movie, a satire is probably to give it too much credit. At the very least, it makes the mistake of intellectualizing a very silly film that seems to have nothing on its mind other than spectacle. To my eyes, it's sort of the 1945 version of a porno spoof of a blockbuster mainstream movie, with dance scenes that are entirely about imagining DiCarlo naked, substituting for hardcore pornography. And instead of spoofing one movie, it spoofs multiple genres, pillaging elements of Civil War movies, westerns, and Universal Exotica in its pastiche. Yvonne plays a Hedy Lamarr-esque Austrian ballet dancer who becomes involved with an American newspaper reporter turned spy, and together they travel from Vienna to the U.S., Yvonne's adventures continue across the continent, with stops for scantily clad dancing. The reason for the movie to exist is not any kind of social or cultural commentary, but the fetishistically photographed image of the gorgeous and balletically competent DiCarlo, as naked as the censorship board of 1945 would allow, writhing, writhing, writhing. Salome Where She Danced got terrible reviews, but it made a profit. Of course it was a movie Howard Hughes loved. He probably wondered why he himself hadn't made it.
Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Howard Hughes met Yvonne DiCarlo on the tail end of a year-long journey away from Los Angeles. To even call it a journey is to be quite charitable to a bizarre series of events. In May 1944, on a test flight of his custom-built Sikorsky S-43 seaplane, Hughes had crashed into Nevada's Lake Mead and two men had died in the accident. Hughes had had the wreck of the plane removed from Lake Mead and rebuilt. A few months later, Hughes told Joe Petrali, who supervised the rebuilding, that he wanted to take the Sikorsky on a trip. Petrali asked where they were going. Hughes said, Las Vegas. What Hughes did not tell Petrali was that they would be gone for months. During that period, Hughes would be completely AWOL, out of touch with the numerous women he had been involved with, and totally hands-off on all of his businesses, including his movie production company. For the first few months, Hughes and Petrali bounced between Vegas Reno, and Palm Springs. Each week we'd move on, and all this time we kept nine hotel rooms and six rental cars, Petrali recalled. Howard gave me orders not to talk to anybody about where we were or what we were doing. In between trips, Hughes would remain alone in his hotel room. Around Christmas, Hughes pulled a disappearing act within his disappearing act. No one, Petrali included, knew where he was for more than a month. When he resurfaced in Vegas, where Petrali had been waiting for him, Hughes told him to get the plane ready. They flew to Shreveport, Louisiana, the site of Caddo Parish, where Howard Hughes Sr. had launched his oil drill bit business. They checked into a hotel, and around 9 p.m., Hughes wandered out and found a deli and bought a bag of cupcakes and a bottle of milk, one of his favorite meals, according to Petrali. It started to rain, and Hughes stood under the awning of a gas station to eat his dinner and wait out the storm. A policeman cruised by, saw a man in a cheap suit with a few days' beard growth, and assumed he was a bum 
The cop asked Hughes who he was and what he was doing there. The cop did not believe him when he said he was Howard Hughes, and Hughes didn't carry an ID. If you are Howard Hughes, the cop asked, have you got any money? Hughes reached into his pocket and pulled out a crumpled $500 bill. The cop arrested him for vagrancy. Eventually, the manager of a local Hughes tool plant was pulled out of bed and brought down to the station to identify the boss. Hughes was let go. You goddamn country policeman. Howard swore at the police chief on his way out the door. Hughes finally returned to public life in New York City in late summer. By September, his name was in the gossip columns as the new escort of Yvonne DiCarlo. After the release of Salome and the filming of her follow-up, Frontier Girl, DiCarlo returned to her hometown of Vancouver to play the Big Fish, performing a cabaret act at a theater that had booked her before she was famous. Howard Hughes definitely had a type in the 1940s, and Yvonne was it. Raven-haired, heavily lidded eyes, prominent cheekbones creating chiseled lines that pointed to a pillowy but unsmiling mouth. Hughes had seen Salome and had taken note of her costume in it, which had featured a skimpy bra top over miles of bare midriff. Hughes flew up to Canada just to meet her. DiCarlo was in between sets when Johnny Meyer approached her. Johnny Meyer was one of Hughes's key personal aides. Hughes had hired him away from a job as a publicist at Warner Brothers, where his duties were said to mainly consist of procuring women for Errol Flynn to have sex with. Meyer introduced himself to Yvonne and said, Mr. Hughes would like to meet you. Yvonne wasn't sure who Mr. Hughes was, but she said, fine. As the 39-year-old Hughes approached, 22-year-old DiCarlo observed that he looked lanky, underfed, and remarkably sad. She thought, wow, this would be a terrific boyfriend for my aunt. The day after Hughes and DiCarlo met, in a move that was extremely unusual for the flying millionaire, he agreed to meet the family with whom the actress was staying in Vancouver. Within the first week of their acquaintance, though they were rarely alone together, as Yvonne put it, we somehow managed to consummate a relationship, and it wasn't bad. It might have been on the clinical side, but that was the way with Howard Hughes. What he did was calculated to please. Hughes apparently liked to watch Yvonne bathe. Admiring her in the tub, he would say, There's nothing quite so appealing on a woman as a nice set of lavaliers. That meant boobs. Toward the end of Hughes's nearly year-long sojourn away from Los Angeles, he had been out flying with DiCarlo 
when he decided to stop and call in for his messages. They landed, and Howard went inside the airport, telling Yvonne he would be back in five minutes. He was gone a lot longer than that, and Yvonne snuck out of the plane to see what was going on. She found him, as she remembered later, yelling on the phone, saying, You just don't give a damn. You don't give a damn. And I thought, what's that? She scrambled back to the plane, and when he finally returned, Hughes asked Yvonne, Are you serious about me? She found out later that Howard had been talking to Ava Gardner, who had been involved with Hughes, but had told him that she was marrying Yvonne's old friend, Artie Shaw. Yvonne and Howard returned to Los Angeles together, where he moved into the townhouse, a luxury hotel not far from the ambassador. There she would visit him at night and lounge around his room, which he had filled with advertising mock-ups for his film, The Outlaw. The pair would eat dinner, make love, and then while Yvonne slept, Howard would agonize over the outlaw's advertising, deep into the night. She noticed that he had what she described as long, curling toenails that nearly wrapped themselves around his toes. They struck me as a bit strange, but I shrugged it off, figuring he must have some well-thought reason for them. Hughes bought Yvonne furniture to fill the house she had recently purchased with her Salome salary. He had a dress designed for her, which she hated, and only wore on dates with him. She believed they were in a serious relationship, and that they would eventually marry. But Hughes used his prodigious influence over the local media to make sure that their relationship remained secret to anyone outside the bubble in which they moved together. Still quite young and naive, Yvonne didn't think this was a big deal. Until one day, when she went out to lunch with Maria Montez and Pat DeChico, one of Hughes' right-hand men. Montez told her to wake up. Hughes was not going to marry her. Then DeChico, of all people, added his two cents. Don't you know about all the other girls in his life? Yvonne said, of course. She knew Howard had been involved with other women. He talked about Billy Dove almost every day. But that was in the past. DeChico and Montez were basically like, Linda Darnell's not in the past. They told her that Hughes was a compulsive liar who kept girls stashed all over town. Early that summer, Yvonne came right out and asked Hughes, Will we ever be married? He told her, unambiguously, no. Shortly after that, he had his nearly fatal plane crash, and he and Yvonne didn't see each other for three years after that. Suddenly, Yvonne got a call that he wanted to come to her house and talk to her about starring in a film for the studio he now owned, RKO. He arrived with a script, and they had a long conversation. Ever vain, Hughes asked, Do I look different to you? Have I changed? 
He must have been deeply concerned about his appearance, because I had never known him to seek reassurance before, Yvonne recalled. Yvonne lied and said he didn't. But he did. As she put it, he looked dreadful, like a caricature of his former self. He had aged 20 years and become a shell of the man I had known and loved. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. After the whirlwind romance with Hughes had ended, Yvonne came down to earth and realized, as she put it, I was not the world's finest actress. She had been cast in Salome for her face and her ability to move her body, but otherwise, that performance had been amateurish at best, and she hadn't improved much since. She began taking lessons, And then she got an assist from producer Mark Hellinger, who cast her in a small part in a Burt Lancaster prison film called Brute Force. DiCarlo's level of interest in the craft of acting and the priority she placed on it within the other excitements in her life is perhaps evidenced by the fact that when she writes about Brute Force in her book, instead of talking about the making of the movie... She describes the one-night stand she had with Lancaster on top of a mink coat in the backyard of her house. DiCarlo would go on to make some well-remembered films, from her follow-up team-up with Lancaster in Criss Cross to Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, which was the highest-grossing movie of 1956 and one of the most successful Hollywood epics of the decade. But from Salome on, she was basically typecast as a scantily clad beauty in genre and or exotic adventure films. Some of these movies were westerns, some took place near or on bodies of water, sometimes she got to do a stunt or hold a gun. Once in the Technicolor biopic Magic Fire, she played the composer Wagner's wife. But a lot of the time, the differences were superficial. Yvonne herself described one studio assignment, Buccaneer's Girl, as the same as all the others, except that this time I was a girl instead of a gal. She had gotten her start at Universal, a studio that ground all of its resources into a formula-driven assembly line. And she proved to have a film career that was about as formulaic as it could get. She didn't fight too hard against this typecasting. There wasn't much she could do if she wanted to keep working steadily. But in her off time, she pursued her own interests. She developed her singing voice by studying with an opera singer. And she had much romantic adventure. Her boyfriends and fiancés 
included actor Howard Duff, who later became Idol Lupino's husband and co-star, stuntman Jocko Mahoney, who later became Sally Fields' allegedly abusive stepfather, Prince Abdereza Pahlavi of Iran, and Rita Hayworth's ex, Prince Ali Khan. She claimed that every time she got engaged, the ring on her finger felt like a noose. But she did eventually get married to a stunt double named Bob Morgan, who she met on the set of a movie called Shotgun, which filmed on location in the middle of the desert. The cast and crew would party together at the motel where they were all temporarily living, and Bob impressed Yvonne with his signature cocktail, a martini mixed with white wine instead of vermouth. They married in November 1955, and within two years, Yvonne had given birth to two sons. As the 50s ended, and her age crept toward 40, film parts waned, and Yvonne kept busy with TV appearances and in a touring nightclub act. Her marriage was troubled, and by 1963, Yvonne was close to filing for divorce. And then Bob got into a horrible accident. On the set of How the West Was Won, after performing a stunt involving 15 tons of lumber in a moving train, Bob was accidentally knocked onto the rails by the falling wood, and then run over by the train. He had to have a leg amputated, and the recovery was long, painful, and difficult. Yvonne dropped everything to support her husband through his ordeal, but eventually the family needed her to make a living. She began taking every nightclub gig she could get, often having to take her two young sons with her for lack of another childcare option. John Wayne got her cast in his film McClintock, which helped her get back on her feet financially. And then Yvonne, still needing to take whatever work she could get in order to feed all the mouths dependent on her, was offered the part that she'd become most famous for. As Lily Munster. The Munsters was part of a boom of macabre and supernatural-themed sitcoms that all premiered in September 1964, including The Addams Family and Bewitched. Bewitched was the longest-lasting of these in its initial run, and The Addams Family became an iconic movie franchise. But The Munsters was initially a big hit, and its original cast, which included Yvonne as the nuclear family's vampire matriarch, and Fred Gwynn as her Frankenstein-esque husband, became synonymous with their characters. Fitting, considering where Yvonne got her start, The Munsters was intentionally modeled after Universal's monster movies of the 1930s, which had become staples of late-night TV. But otherwise, the show was basically a spoof on 1950s sitcoms, with a few occasional reminders that most of its protagonists were undead. In this clip, Yvonne's Lily confesses to her niece a disturbing secret she's discovered about her husband. Oh, it's terrible. It's a disaster. Well, what's wrong, Aunt Lily? We'll be disgraced, ruined, wiped off the face of the earth. Your Uncle Herman is overdrawn at the bank. 
Uncle Herman, I can't believe it. Down through history, this only happened once before in our family. When Grandpa overdrew his account at the blood bank. Did Uncle Herman say anything about this? Oh, no, he's too proud. Why, if he found out that we knew he was broke, he'd never be able to look himself in the face again. Well, maybe Grandpa could help us out. He's very well off. He was, he was. But you know the expression, you can't take it with you? Well, Grandpa did. <laughs> Universal produced 70 episodes of The Munsters over two seasons and then canceled the show when ratings dropped against its new competitor, Batman. But the sitcom, which became a phenomenon in syndication, revitalized Yvonne's career and led to new opportunities in straight horror. From The Power in 1968 to 80s schlock like Vultures and Play Dead. And in between came a career highlight that looks like an outlier amongst the rest of DiCarlo's work, but in hindsight is not just the kind of thing that she was preparing for from the beginning, but was clearly tailored specifically for her. Here is Yvonne DiCarlo in 1984 talking about her triumph of about a decade and a half earlier. I finally made it to Broadway in a brand new sparkling musical called Follies. <coughs> it was produced by that prince of a fellow, Harold Prince, and choreographed by Michael Bennett, the genius of chorus line, and music and lyrics by uh, Stephen Sondheim, the fabulous Stephen Sondheim. I played the part of a former wealthy movie star called Carlotta Campion. And I'm honored to say that uh, Stephen Sondheim wrote a song for me, or rather, for Carlotta, who was a Follies girl, class of 46. And since I'm still here, I would like to sing it for you. Good times and bum times, I've seen them all in my dear. I'm still here. Yvonne DiCarlo was still here until 2007, when she died at the age of 84. Next week, we will conclude this miniseries with the tale of another exotic beauty whose brief encounter with Howard Hughes would, for better or for worse, become part of her legacy. Join us then, won't you? Danced in my scanties, three bucks a night was the pay. And I'm here. I've stood on bread lines with the best. Watched while the headlines did the rest. In the depression was I depressed. But I'm here First you're another Slow-eyed vamp Then someone's mother Then your camp Then you career from Korea To Korea I'm almost through my memoirs And I'm here
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editor is Olivia Natt. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guest, Noah Segan, who returned to the podcast to play Howard Hughes. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with lists of all of our sources and the music used on each episode. And if you go to you must remember this podcast.com slash seduction, you'll find information about how to pre-order the book that this season is related to, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood, written by me. We also have a schedule of events that I'll be doing related to the book, which include book signings, film screenings, and more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. Want to win a signed copy of my new book? You can. I've teamed up with my publisher to give 50 listeners, chosen at random, the chance to win a signed copy of Seduction. This giveaway is open to U.S. residents 18 years of age and older only. Rules and regulations apply. To learn more and enter now, visit our website at youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash seduction. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic. 
because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.